If you're enjoying this book, then I know you will love the exclusive stories on our premium feed. Follow the link in the show notes to try it free for seven days and dive into more of your favorite sleepy stories. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so pleased to have you here with me. Tonight, we're continuing with Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before we begin, take a moment here to recenter and relax. Start with a nice big stretch, really drawing your attention to the muscles in your legs and back. Let them know that they can rest after a day of hard work. To clear your mind, let's take a deep breath in, collecting together your thoughts and worries from the day. And when you exhale, I want you to audibly sigh them all away. In our last episode, the professor was coming to terms with having gone backwards rather than onwards in their journey after the storm. He was furious and determined to continue regardless. Harry resigned to the will of his uncle, mentally prepared to set out on the raft again, which Hans was repairing. Professor Hardwig recognized that before they leave, they should take some time to examine their current surroundings as they had landed on a slightly different part of the shore than the one they left all those days ago. To their great surprise, after an hour or so, they came across a perfectly preserved skeleton of what appeared to be a human man. The professor was delighted the finding being incredibly significant to scientific discovery at the time. They continued onward with renewed interest and found a forest made of all the flora and fauna found on Earth from various parts of the globe, all in one place. But instead of varying shades of green and color, It was all brown, likely owing to the lack of sunlight. Suddenly, Harry stopped his uncle and pointed out in awe a pack of mastodons in the distance. They stepped in their direction before spotting what seemed to be a human figure. The man was enormous at least 12 feet in height. Fearing a hostile reception, they quickly retreated. And so, we continue with our story tonight, 
Harry and the professor rushing back to Hans in total disbelief at all they had just encountered. So just relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 37 The Mysterious Dagger During this time, we had left the bright and transparent forest far behind us. We were mute with astonishment, overcome by a kind of feeling which was next door to apathy. We kept running in spite of ourselves. Our feelings resembled one of those horrible sensations we sometimes meet with in our dreams. Instinctively, we made our way towards the central sea, and I cannot now tell what wild thoughts passed through my mind, nor of what follies I might have been guilty but for a very serious preoccupation, which brought me back to practical life. Though I was aware that we were treading on a soil quite new to us, every now and then I noticed certain aggregations of rock, the shape of which forcibly reminded me of those near Port Gretchen. This confirmation, moreover, the indications of the compass and our extraordinary and unlooked-for, as well as involuntary, return to the north of this great central sea. It was so like our starting point that I could scarcely doubt the reality of our position Streams and cascades fell in hundreds over the numerous projections of the rocks. I actually thought I could see Hans and the wonderful grotto in which I had come back to life after my tremendous fall. Then, as we advanced still further, the position of the cliffs, the appearance of a stream, The unexpected profile of a rock threw me again into a state of bewildering doubt. After some time, I explained my state of mental indecision to my uncle. He confessed to a similar feeling of hesitation. He was totally unable to make up his mind in the midst of this extraordinary but uniform panorama. There can be no doubt, I insisted, that we have not landed exactly at the place whence we first took our departure, but the tempest has brought us above our starting point. I think, therefore, that if we follow the coast, we shall once more find Port Gretchen, In that case, 
said my uncle. It is useless to continue our exploration. The very best thing we can do is to make our way back to the raft. Are you quite sure, Harry, that you are not mistaken? It is difficult, was my reply, to come to any decision, for all these rocks are exactly alike. There is no marked difference between them. At the same time, the impression on my mind is that I recognize the promontory at the foot of which Hans constructed the raft. We are, I'm nearly convinced, near the little port, if this be not it, I added, carefully examining a creek which appeared singularly familiar to my mind. My dear Harry, if this were the case, we should find traces of our own footsteps, some signs of our passage, said my uncle, and I can really see nothing to indicate our having passed this way. But I see something, I said as I rushed forward and eagerly picked up something which shone in the sand under my feet. What is it? asked the astonished and bewildered professor. This was my reply, and I handed to my startled relative a rusty dagger of singular shape. What made you bring with you so useless a weapon? He asked. It was needlessly hampering yourself. I bring it. It is quite new to me, I replied. I never saw it before. Are you sure it is not out of your collection? Not that I know of, said the professor, puzzled. I have no recollection of it. It was never my property. This is very extraordinary, I said, musing over the novel and strange incident. Not at all, said he. There is a very simple explanation. This must have belonged to Hans, who has let it fall without knowing it. I shook my head. That dagger had never been in the possession of our guide. I knew him and his habits too well. Then what can it be, unless it be the weapon of some antediluvian warrior? I continued. Of some living man, a contemporary of that mighty shepherd from whom we have just escaped, but no, mystery upon mystery. This is no weapon of the Stone Age, nor even of the Bronze Period. It is made of excellent steel. Ere I could finish my sentence, my uncle stopped me short from entering upon a whole train of theories and spoke in his most cold undecided tone of voice. Calm yourself, my dear boy, and endeavor to use your reason 
he said. This weapon, upon which we have fallen so unexpectedly, is a true dagger, one of those worn by gentlemen in their belts during the 16th century. Its use was to give the coup de grace, the final blow to the foe who would not surrender. It is clearly of Spanish workmanship. It belongs to neither you, nor to me, nor the Eiderdown hunter, nor to any of the living beings who may still exist so marvelously in the interior of the earth. What can you mean, uncle? I said, now lost in a host of surmises. Look closely at it, he continued. These jagged edges were never made by the resistance of human blood and bone. The blade is covered with a regular coating of iron, mold and rust, which is not a day old, not a year old, not a century old, but much more. The professor began to get quite excited, according to custom, and was allowing himself to be carried away by his fertile imagination. I could have said something. He stopped me. Harry, he said, we are now on the verge of a great discovery. This blade of a dagger you have so marvelously discovered after being abandoned upon the sand for more than a hundred, two hundred, or even three hundred years, has been indented by someone endeavoring to carve an inscription on these rocks. But this weapon never got here of itself, I said. It could not have twisted itself. Someone, therefore, must have preceded us upon the shores of this extraordinary sea. Yes, my uncle replied. But what man has been sufficiently desperate to do such a thing? I asked. A man who has somewhere written his name with this very dagger, said he. A man who has endeavored once more to indicate the right road to the interior of the earth. Let us look around, my boy. You know not the importance of your singular and happy discovery. Prodigiously interested, we walked along the wall of the rock, examining the smallest fissures which might expand into the much-wished-for gully or shaft. We at last reached a spot where the shore became extremely narrow. The sea almost bathed the foot of the rocks, which were here very lofty and steep. There was scarcely a path wider than two yards at any point, at last, under a huge overhanging rock, we discovered the entrance of a dark and gloomy tunnel 
there on a square tablet of granite, which had been smoothed by rubbing it with another stone, we could see two mysterious and much-worn letters. The two initials of the bold and extraordinary traveler who had preceded us on our adventurous journey. A.S., observed my uncle. You see, I was right. Anna Saknusum. It is always Anna Saknusum. Chapter 38 No Outlet Blasting the Rock Ever since the commencement of our marvelous journey, I had experienced many surprises, had suffered from many illusions. I thought that I was case-hardened against all surprises and could neither see nor hear anything to amaze me again. I was like many who, having been round the world, finds himself wholly blasé and proof against the marvellous. When, however, I saw these two letters, which had been engraven three hundred years before, I stood, fixed in an attitude of mute surprise. Not only was there the signature of the learned and enterprising alchemist written in the rock, but I held in my hand the very identical instrument with which he had laboriously engraved it. It was impossible, without showing an amount of incredulity, scarcely becoming a sane man, to deny the existence of the traveller, and the reality of that voyage, which I believed all along to have been a myth, the mystification of some fertile brain. While these reflections were passing through my mind, my uncle, the professor, gave way to feverish and poetical excitement. Wonderful and glorious genius, great Sacknusum, he said. You have left no stone unturned, no resource omitted to show to other mortals the way to the interior of our mighty globe. And your fellow creatures can find the trail left by your illustrious footsteps three hundred years ago at the bottom of these obscure subterranean abodes. You have been careful to secure for others the contemplation of these wonders and marvels of creation, your name engraved at every important stage of your glorious journey leads the hopeful traveler direct to the great and mighty discovery to which you devoted such energy and courage. The audacious traveler 
who shall follow your footsteps to the last will doubtless find your initials engraved with your own hand upon the center of the earth. I will be that audacious traveler. I, too, will sign my name upon the very same spot, upon the central granite stone of this wondrous work of nature. But in justice to your devotion, to your courage, and to your being the first to indicate the road, let this cape, seen by you upon the shores of this sea, discovered by you, be called of all time Cape Sacknusum. This is what I heard, and I began to be roused to the pitch of enthusiasm indicated by those words. A fierce excitement roused me. I forgot everything. The dangers of the voyage and the perils of the return journey were now as nothing. What another man had done in ages past could, I felt, be done again. I was determined to do it myself, and now nothing that man had accomplished appeared to me impossible. Forward, forward, I said in a burst of genuine and hearty enthusiasm. I had already started in the direction of the somber and gloomy gallery when the professor stopped me. He, the man so rash and hasty, he, the man so easily roused to the highest pitch of enthusiasm, checked me and asked me to be patient and show more calm. Let us return to our good friend Hans, he said. We shall then bring the raft down to this place. I must say that though I at once yielded to my uncle's request, it was not without dissatisfaction, and I hastened along the rocks of that wonderful coast. Do you know, my dear uncle, I said as we walked along, that we have been singularly helped by a concurrence of circumstances right up to this very moment. So, you begin to see it, do you, Harry? said the professor with a smile. Doubtless, I responded. And strangely enough, even the tempest has been the means of putting us on the right road. Blessings on the tempest. It brought us safely back to the very spot from which fine weather would have driven us forever. Supposing we had succeeded in reaching the southern and distant shores of this extraordinary sea, what would have become of us? The name of Sack Newsom would never have appeared to us. And at this moment, 
we should have been cast away upon an inhospitable coast, possibly without an outlet. Yes, Harry, my boy, there is certainly something providential in that wandering at the mercy of the wind and waves towards the south, said the professor. We have come back exactly north, and what is better still, we fall upon this great discovery of Cape Sacknusum. I mean to say that it is more than surprising. There is something in it which is far beyond my comprehension. The coincidence is unheard of and marvelous. It is not our duty to explain facts, but to make the best possible use of them, I replied. I see exactly how it will be. We shall take the northern route. We shall pass under the northern regions of Europe, under Sweden, under Russia, under Siberia, and who knows where, instead of burying ourselves under the burning plains and deserts of Africa or beneath the mighty waves of the ocean. And that is all at this stage of our journey that I care to know. Yes, Harry, you are right, quite right, my uncle said. All is for the best. Let us abandon this horizontal sea, which could never have led to anything satisfactory. We shall descend, descend, and everlastingly descend. Do you know, my dear boy, that to reach the interior of the earth, we have only 5,000 miles to travel? The distance is scarcely worth speaking about, I replied. The thing is to make a start. My speeches continued until we rejoined our patient guide. All was, we found, prepared for an immediate departure. There was not a single parcel, but what was in its proper place. We all took up our posts on the raft, and the sail being hoisted, Hans received his directions and guided the frail bark towards Cape Sacknusum, as we had definitely named it. The wind was very unfavorable to a craft that was unable to sail close to the wind. It was constructed to go before the blast. We were continually reducing to pushing ourselves forward by means of poles. On several occasions, the rocks ran far out into deep water and we were compelled to make a long round. At last, after three long and weary hours of navigation, that is to say about six o'clock in the evening, we found a place at which we could land. I jumped on shore first, 
in my present state of excitement and enthusiasm, I was always first. My uncle and the Icelander followed. The voyage from the port to this point of the sea had by no means calmed me. It had rather produced the opposite effect. I even proposed to burn our vessel, that is, to destroy our raft, in order to completely cut off our retreat. But my uncle sternly opposed this wild project. I began to think him particularly lukewarm and unenthusiastic. At any rate, my dear uncle, I said, let us start without delay. Yes, my boy, I am quite as eager to do so as you can be, he replied. But in the first place, let us examine this mysterious gallery in order to find if we shall need to prepare and mend our ladders. My uncle now began to see the efficiency of our Ruhmkorff coil, which would doubtless soon be needed. The raft, securely fastened to a rock, was left alone. Moreover, the opening into the new gallery was not twenty paces distant from the spot. Our little troop, with myself at the head, advanced. The orifice, which was almost circular, presented a diameter of about five feet. The somber tunnel was cut in the living rock and coated on the inside by the different material which had once passed through it in a state of fusion. The lower part was about level with the water, so that we were able to penetrate to the interior without difficulty. We followed an almost horizontal direction, when at the end of about a dozen paces, our further advance was checked by the interposition of an enormous block of granite rock. A cursed stone, I said on perceiving that we were stopped by what seemed an insurmountable obstacle. In vain we looked to the right. In vain we looked to the left. In vain we examined it above and below. There existed no passage, no sign of any other tunnel. I experienced the most bitter and painful disappointment. So disappointed was I that I would not admit the reality of any obstacle. I stooped to my knees. I looked under the mass of stone. There was no hole no interstice. I then looked above, but there was the same barrier of granite. Hans, with the lamp, examined the sides of the tunnel in every direction, but it was all in vain. It was necessary to renounce all hope of passing through 
I had seated myself upon the ground. My uncle walked hopelessly up and down. He was evidently desperate. But, I said after some moments thought, what about Anna Saknusum? You are right, replied my uncle. He can never have been checked by a lump of rock. No, ten thousand times no, I said. This huge lump of rock, in consequence of some singular concussion or process, one of those magnetic phenomena which have so often shaken the terrestrial crust, has in some unexpected way closed up the passage. Many and many years have passed away since the return of Saknusum and the fall of this huge block of granite. Is it not quite evident that this gallery was formerly the outlet for the pent-up lava in the interior of the earth, and that these eruptive matters then circulated freely? Look at these recent fissures in the granite roof. It is evidently formed of pieces of enormous stone, placed here as if by the hand of a giant who had worked to make a strong and substantial arch. One day, after an unusually strong shock, the vast rock which stands in our way, and which was doubtless the key of a kind of arch, fell through to a level with the soil and has barred our further progress. We are right then, in thinking that this is an unexpected obstacle with which Saknusum did not meet, and if we do not upset it in some way, we are unworthy of following in the footsteps of the great discoverer, and incapable of finding our way to the center of the earth. In this wild way I addressed my uncle, the zeal of the professor, his earnest longing for success, had become part and parcel of my being. I wholly forgot the past. I utterly despised the future. Nothing existed for me upon the surface of this spheroid in the bosom of which I was engulfed. No towns, no country, no Hamburg, no Koningstrasse, not even my poor Gretchen, who by this time would believe me utterly lost in the interior of the earth. Well, said my uncle, roused to enthusiasm by my words, let us go to work with pickaxes, with crowbars, with anything that comes to hand down with these terrible walls. It is far too tough and too big to be destroyed by a pickaxe or a crowbar, I replied. As I said, 
It is useless to think of overcoming such a difficulty by means of ordinary tools. What then? My uncle asked. What else but gunpowder? A subterranean mine? I said. Let us blow up the obstacle that stands in our way. Gunpowder? My uncle repeated. Yes, said I. All we have to do is get rid of this paltry obstacle. To work, Hans, to work, said the professor. Hans went back to the raft and soon returned with a huge crowbar with which he began to dig a hole in the rock which was to serve as a mine. It was by no means a slight task. It was necessary for our purpose to make a cavity large enough to hold 50 pounds of fulminating gun cotton, the expansive powder of which is four times as great as that of ordinary gunpowder. I had now roused myself to an almost miraculous state of excitement. While Hans was at work, I actively assisted my uncle to prepare a long wick made from damp gunpowder, the mass of which we finally enclosed in a bag of linen. We are bound to go through, I said hopefully. We are bound to go through, responded the professor, tapping me on the back. At midnight, our work as miners was completely finished. The charge of fulminating cotton was thrust into the hollow, and the match, which we had made of considerable length, was ready. A spark was now sufficient to ignite this formidable engine and to blow the rock to atoms. We will rest until tomorrow, my uncle said. It was absolutely necessary to resign myself to my fate and to consent to wait for the explosion for six weary hours. Chapter 39 The Explosion and Its Results The next day, which was the 27th of August, was a date I celebrated in our wondrous subterranean journey. I never think of it even now, but I shudder with horror. My heart beats wildly at the very memory of that awful day. From this time forward, our reason, our judgment, our human ingenuity have nothing to do with the course of events. We were about to become the plaything of the great phenomena of the earth. At six o'clock, we were all up and ready. The dreaded moment was arriving when we were about to seek an opening into the interior of the earth 
by means of gunpowder, what would be the consequences of breaking through the crust of the earth? I begged that it might be my duty to set fire to the mine. I looked upon it as an honor. This task, once performed, I could rejoin my friends upon the raft, which had not been unloaded. As soon as we were all ready, we were to sail away to some distance to avoid the consequences of the explosion, the effects of which would certainly not be concentrated in the interior of the earth. The slow match we calculated to burn for about ten minutes more or less before it reached the chamber in which the great body of powder was confined. I should therefore have plenty of time to reach the raft and put off to a safe distance. I prepared to execute my self-allotted task, not, it must be confessed, without considerable emotion. After a hearty repast, my uncle and the hunter-guide embarked on board the raft, while I remained alone upon the desolate shore. I was provided with a lantern which was to enable me to set fire to the wick of the infernal machine. Go, my boy, said my uncle, and heaven be with you, but come back as soon as you can. I shall be all impatience. Be easy on that matter, I replied. There is no fear of my delaying on the road. Having said this, I advanced towards the opening of the somber gallery. My heart beat wildly. I opened my lantern and seized the extremity of the wick. The professor, who was looking on, held his chronometer in his hand. Are you ready? he asked. Quite ready, I replied. Well then, fire away, he commanded. I hastened to put light to the wick, which crackled and sparkled, hissing and spitting like a serpent. Then, running as fast as I could, I returned to the shore. Get on board, my lad, and you, Hans, shove off, said my uncle. By a vigorous application of his pole, Hans sent us flying over the water. The raft was quite twenty fathoms distant. It was a moment of palpitating interest, of deep anxiety. My uncle, the professor, never took his eyes off the chronometer. Only five minutes more he said in a low tone. Only four. Only three. My pulse went a hundred to the minute. I could hear my heart beating. Only two. One. 
he said. Now, then mountains of granite crumble beneath the power of man. What happened after that? As to the terrific roar of the explosion, I do not think I heard it, but the form of the rocks completely changed in my eyes. They seemed to be drawn aside like a curtain. I saw a fathomless, bottomless abyss, which yawned between the turgid waves. The sea, which seemed suddenly to have gone mad, then became one great, mountainous mass upon the top of which the raft rose perpendicularly. We were all thrown down in less than a second. The light gave place to the most profound obscurity. Then I felt all solid support give way, not to my feet, but to the raft itself. I thought it was going bodily down a tremendous well. I tried to speak, to question my uncle. Nothing could be heard but the roaring of the mighty waves. We clung together in utter silence. Despite the awful darkness, despite the noise, the surprise, the emotion, I thoroughly understood what had happened. Beyond the rock which had been blown up, there existed a mighty abyss. The explosion had caused a kind of earthquake in this soil, broken by fissures and rents. The gulf, thus suddenly thrown open, was about to swallow the inland sea, which transformed into a mighty torrent was dragging us with it. Only one idea filled my mind. We were utterly and completely lost. One hour, two hours, what more I cannot say, passed in this manner. We sat close together, elbow touching elbow, knee touching knee, We held one another's hands, not to be thrown off the raft. We were subjected to the most violent shocks. Whenever our sole dependence, a frail wooden raft, struck against the rocky sides of the channel. Fortunately for us, these concussions became less and less frequent which made me fancy that the gallery was getting wider and wider. There could be now no doubt that we had chanced upon the road once followed by Sack Newsom, but instead of going down in a proper manner, we had, through our own imprudence, drawn a whole sea with us. These ideas presented themselves to my mind in a very vague and obscure manner. 
I felt rather than reasoned. I put my ideas together only confusedly, while spinning along like a man going down a waterfall. To judge by the air which, as it were, whipped in my face, we must have been rushing at a perfectly lightning rate. To attempt under these circumstances to light a torch was simply impossible, and the last remains of our electric machine, of our Ruhmkorff coil, had been destroyed during the fearful explosion. I was therefore very much confused to see at last a bright light shining close to me. The calm countenance of the guide seemed to gleam upon me. The clever and patient hunter had succeeded in lighting the lantern, and though in the keen and thorough draught the flame flickered and vacillated and was nearly put out, it served partially to dissipate the awful obscurity. The gallery into which we entered was very wide. I was, therefore, quite right in that part of my conjecture. The insufficient light did not allow us to see both of the walls at the same time. The slope of waters which was carrying us away was far greater than that of the most rapid river of America. The whole surface of the stream seemed to be composed of liquid arrows darted forward with extreme violence and power. I can give no idea of the impression it made upon me. The raft, at times, caught in certain whirlpools and rushed forward, yet turned on itself all the time. How it did not upset, I shall never be able to understand. When it approached the sides of the gallery, I took care to throw upon them the light of the lantern, and I was able to judge the rapidity of motion by looking at the projecting masses of rock, which as soon as seen were again invisible. So rapid was our progress that points of rock at considerable distance, one from the other, appeared like portions of transverse lines, which enclosed us in a kind of net like that of a line of telegraphic wires. I believe we were now going at a rate of not less than a hundred miles an hour. My uncle and I looked at one another with wild and haggard eyes. We clung convulsively to the stump of the mast which at the moment when the catastrophe took place had snapped short off. We turned our backs as much as possible to the wind in order not to be stifled by a rapidity of motion which nothing human could face and live. 
and still, the long, monotonous hours went on. The situation did not change in the least, though a discovery I suddenly made seemed to complicate it very much. When we had slightly recovered our equilibrium, I proceeded to examine our cargo. I then made the unsatisfactory discovery that the greater part of it had utterly disappeared. I became alarmed and determined to discover what were our resources. My heart beat at the idea that it was absolutely necessary to know on what we had to depend. With this view, I took the lantern and looked around. Of all our former collection of nautical and philosophical instruments, there remained only the chronometer and the compass. The ladders and ropes were reduced to a small piece of rope fastened to the stump of the mast. Not a pickaxe, not a crowbar, not a hammer, and far worse than all, no food. Not enough for one day. This discovery was a prelude to a certain and horrible death. Seated gloomily on the raft, clasping the stump of the mast mechanically, I thought of all I had read as to the sufferings from starvation. I remembered everything that history had taught me on the subject, and I shuddered at the remembrance of the agonies to be endured. Maddening at the prospects of enduring these miseries, I persuaded myself that I must be mistaken. I examined the cracks in the raft. I poked between the joints and beams. I examined every possible hole and corner. The result was simply nothing. Our stock of provisions consisted of nothing but a piece of dry meat and some soaked and half-moldy biscuits. I gazed around me, scared and frightened. I could not understand the awful truth, and yet of what consequence was it in regard to any new danger? Supposing that we had provisions for months and even for years, how could we ever get out of the awful abyss into which we were being hurled by the irresistible torrent we had let loose? Why should we trouble ourselves about the sufferings and tortures to be endured from hunger when death stared us in the face under so many other, swifter, and perhaps even more horrid forms. It was very doubtful, under the circumstances in which we were placed, if we should have time to die of inanition. But the human frame is singularly constituted. I know not how it was, but from some singular hallucination of the mind, I forgot the real, serious, 
and immediate danger to which we were exposed, to think of the menaces of the future which appeared before us in all their naked terror. Besides, after all, suggested hope, perhaps we might finally escape the fury of the raging torrent and once more revisit the glimpses of the moon on the surface of our beautiful Mother Earth. How was it to be done? I had not the remotest idea. Where were we to come out? No matter, so long as we did. One chance in a thousand is always a chance, while death from hunger gave us not even the faintest glimpse of hope. It left to the imagination nothing but blank horror without the faintest chance of escape. I had the greatest mind to reveal all to my uncle, to explain to him the extraordinary and wretched position to which we were reduced, in order that, between the two, we might make a calculation as to the exact space of time which remained for us to live. It was, it appeared to me, the only thing to be done. But I had the courage to hold my tongue, to gnaw at my entrails like the Spartan boy, I wished to leave him all his coolness. At this moment, the light of the lantern slowly fell and at last went out. The wick had wholly burned to an end. The obscurity became absolute. It was no longer possible to see through the impenetrable darkness. There was one torch left, was impossible to keep it alight. Then, like a child, I shut my eyes that I might not see the darkness. After a great lapse of time, the rapidity of our journey increased. I could feel it by the rush of air upon my face. The slope of the waters was excessive. I began to feel that we were no longer going down a slope. We were falling. I felt as one does in a dream, going down bodily, falling, falling, falling. I felt that the hands of my uncle and Hans were vigorously clasping my arms. Suddenly, after a lapse of time scarcely appreciable, I felt something like a shock. The raft had not struck a hard body, but had suddenly been checked in its course. A water spout, a liquid column of water fell upon us. I felt suffocating. I was being drowned. Still, the sudden inundation did not last. In a few seconds, I felt myself once more able to breathe. My uncle and Hans pressed my arms, and the raft carried us all three away.